Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you here. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous fall morning up here in New Haven. I'm looking out at New Haven Harbor and uh, my son is visiting. I went out for a bike ride this morning. What, what's the weather like down in uh, Jacksonville, right? Fort Lauderdale. I'm trying, trying to remember where you're. No, you're right. Place. We're in Jacks. Yeah, um, yeah. Same. I'm looking out over the intercoastal. It's a gorgeous sunny day for us fall. So in the 70s. Um, and my, my son's <laughs> actually coming to visit next week as we nice. uh, U-Haul to get up to his first condo. So we're on the sim- similar plane. I'm awesome. I see here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we caught, had a chance to chat a couple of weeks ago, and we share a common love of, of thriller mysteries and i was uh sharing with you how much i enjoyed the book you shared uh, with me and you know awesome. it's uh it's amazing we'll talk a little bit more about that because i've got a, a question for you in terms of how the the plot line from some of those books might impact the way you you lead but let, let's start at the beginning and uh okay. talk a little bit about you tell me you know where you grew up and what your early life was like but uh, part of the sure. country and mom and dad yeah i grew up in upstate new york up in syracuse nice. um nice. One brother, year younger, uh, mm-hmm. mom and dad in the yellow lab, all the good stuff. And <laughs> mom and dad in the yellow lab, I love yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> until seventh grade. Then mom took off and it was the three men. And I have to tell you, that wasn't the worst uh, way to grow up in, in, in high school either. Um, and, and so that was it, you, you know, just kind of a basic upbringing, mm-hmm. nothing crazy or too exciting. Yeah. Good student in school? Uh, very good in high school. That yeah. changed a bit in college. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll get into that in a bit. Okay. But what about growing up? Uh, you know, odd jobs, any entrepreneurial things, have the ubiquitous paper route, you know, what kind of things were you doing as a kid? Yeah, a little bit. You know, my dad, he, he was actually, um, the president of Pepsi in upstate New York, three oh, bottling. Right. Uh, okay. yeah, so it was kind of neat in consumer products. And, uh, right. it, it, so, but he instilled a, a work ethic. So certainly I had the odd jobs. I'd paper around stuff like that, that not, not my own that I would fill in for people. And then, uh, there were these farms you could go to and do some labor, but he had mm. me pretty busy. Um, you know, he, he's really not a man uh, that believes much in entitlement. So I had, uh, I think seven or eight hours I had to bang out every week doing uh, the yard. And upstate New York, you have big yards. And, of course, he wanted everything bagged. So that was a tedious effort. But, uh, oh, yeah. you know, it was a good lesson. And you had the season. Snow on the ground there as well, I'm sure. In the oh, absolutely. Snow did blowing. Your, did your share of plowing. Yeah. For sure. You betcha. <laughs> What about other influencers, uh, folks, you know, that you remember either as teachers or coaches growing up that had an impact and influence on your early life? You know, really, when I think back to the early life, it it just boils down to my parents. Um, And that might sound a little bit cliched. Of course, I had some great teachers like everybody and um, coaches were a little tough. So that was probably good in many ways uh, as well. But I think, you know, what I find interesting is my dad was all business, very successful. And my mom was all heart, um, philanthropy. And um, maybe that's why it didn't work out for them. But I I feel like I I have um, influences from both of them, which have have resulted in how I lead and manage and treat people. Was your dad a long-term Pepsi employee? He was for a while. It was actually Pepsi um, bottling. Pepsi bottling. Yeah, but then he left and uh, he was an entrepreneur and did his own thing uh, for a while. So I I saw some some ups and some pretty lows, uh, downs, some big downs as well from that regard and um, his resilience and uh, just, I lost him, unfortunately, a couple of months ago, but just oh, an amazing sorry. guy that, yeah, thanks. Yeah. We, we've all suffered uh, in these last few years yeah, majorly, yeah. but um, just a man of great integrity and, and mm-hmm. still a loving dad, not not austere by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but, yeah. you know, very different from how my mom saw the world. What did you think, if you, if you thought back and tried to distill it down, what's kind of the lesson that you, you took away from dad in those early days? Uh, integrity, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, I Keep remember getting, uh, yeah, we were playing Parcheesi, if anyone knows what that game is. <laughs> oh, sure. I'll never forget this moment. <laughs> You're dating yourself, Dad. But I, yeah, I, do I know, know totally. So people are Googling Parcheesi. It's not even coming up. <laughs> but, 
but uh, I called him a cheater. Um, oh. And, and I, he swiftly spanked me and told me how serious it is to accuse a man of something you, you're not sure of. And, and yeah. that was the last time I assure you. <laughs> what about sports uh, you know, or other types of outside activities? What did you keep yourself busy I, I would with say mediocre athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, growing up is probably better until I get to the high school ages where people are just far more talented than me. So I played a lot of soccer. Uh, but then when I got to high school, I wrestled. Um, oh, not okay. not a big guy, so you know, couldn't play yeah. football or any of that stuff. And so wrestling was a, a pretty good. Um, I didn't really enjoy it during season. I loved it after season, and, and right. it was grueling and terrible uh, during. But you know, it taught me a lot, and it yeah. kept me busy. You're kind of a wiry guy, right? So you, you, you know, move move around a little bit and yeah. get those moves, get get them into those half Nelsons, and <laughs> or, 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 or be subjected to them if I'm being honest. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, was it a foregone conclusion that you go on to college, Doug? Did, did Dad it, it have was. A college education, Mom as well? Yeah, that's just kind of how it was um, yeah. where we grew yeah. up in with my folks, for sure. And how did you go about making the decision about where to go to school? You know, I really wanted to go to the Naval Academy, and I yeah. didn't get the congressional uh, nomination. Oh, right. yeah. And um, so, actually, up in Connecticut, there's a guy that was helping with co- college counseling before that was a big, big thing. And my right. dad took me to him, and his son was actually at Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt had a great Navy ROTC program. And so he said, you ought to look into that. And my dad's whole thing was expand your horizons, expand your horizons, get out of your comfort zone, get out of upstate New York, get out of the Northeast. And it eventually led me to Vanderbilt where I I actually did not do the Naval ROTC program, but it was one of the first draws. Great school. Uh, It's an amazing school now. I tell everybody, uh, if we're being really honest, the requirements to get in 30 years ago weren't anywhere where they are today. So (laughs) I like the cachet it has, but I've got to be honest. I went to a state school, and I don't think I'd get in there now either. Oh, it's (laughs) crazy, isn't it? It's just insane. So so dramatically. And did you you try to do college uh, wrestling or college sports at all? No, no, not at all. Right. No. And, And what was your field of study? Well, I started as an English major, and okay. then I bounced over. You asked uh, about influences. I found a teacher, uh, Professor Aiken, who was just amazing and yeah. relatively esoteric field uh, for, for most, I would think, how they'd consider it. But it was history of Latin America, and I just fell in oh. love with it. And so I took um, Spanish and history and Russian language and Russian history. I had designs of becoming a CIA officer or an FBI agent or something like that. And that was the path I took. So I I got out of Vanderbilt with a uh, history of um, Latin America and Russian studies degree. Got it. Cool. Yeah, so you were there all four years. And then did you go on to get a master's or did you pass that up? Well, I did, um, probably for the wrong reasons. Uh, You know, (laughs) honestly, I got out and said, boy, that GPA is not exactly going to land me the job I'm hoping for. Mm. And I actually ended up on an airplane with an FBI agent. um, talked to him like, oh, my gosh, this is my dream. And, you know, what are you guys looking for? And and I started sharing my experience. said, you know, actually, we've got a big need for people in human resources. Um, huh. which was interesting because Vanderbilt yeah. had just come out with a new program. Back then, we used to call HRD, Human Resource Development. Right. Right. Uh, so I went on and got uh, a master's in, in HRD, which is organizational development and learning and training and all that kind of stuff. And you did that back-to-back right after you finished? I did, I did, yeah. 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 And then what was that first job you took coming out of school? Well, I guess having the consumer products blood in me, I went down. My wife was pursuing a PhD down at UF. She, we met at Vanderbilt. She wasn't my wife at the time. But at any rate, so I, I followed her down there. I was looking for a job, did some waiting jobs, and finally landed with Pillsbury, mm. uh, where I was just a, a sales rep in a territory uh, in Florida for Pillsbury. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. And uh, did you have aspirations to go into HR there at that time or just kind of enjoy the marketing part of what you were doing or sales and marketing, I guess, at that time? Yeah, you know, it was mostly sales, honestly, not yeah. that sexy, going literally grocery to store, grocery store, making sure your SKUs are up and trying to sell them on the greatest uh, Pillsbury Doughboy frosting and stuff like that. <laughs> right, so right. not really an opportunity to utilize the HR per se. Um, however, a lot of transferable skills from that program yeah. that led to, um, I would say, sales success and, and leadership success as well. Now, was it at that company that you first started managing people or, or a little bit later on? Tell us about yeah, that. it was at Pillsbury. Um, okay. A couple of promotions where I wasn't managing yeah. people. And then uh, they moved me up to Minneapolis, not headquarters. That's where headquarters was. But they moved me All up right. there for a territory. And that was my first foray into managing people. I think, at, you know, age of 25. Kind of a district manager, district sales yeah, manager. Exactly, like yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 What were some of the challenges you had in that, in that first kind of <laughs> management, uh, you know, environment? You know, I think the biggest for me was uh, establishing credibility because mm. I was this young kid and um, most of my team was comprised of, uh, well, guys about my age now, you know, 55. Right, more right. senior, yeah. Yeah, very senior. Um, and then some really um, just dynamic young women who were going to go um, just trailblazing through the organization. So kind of the balance between the two. And, and honestly, having this sense that I was supposed to know everything, uh, and I, I sure as hell didn't, and, and some of the insecurities that come along with that. Right. Um, so, yeah. And did you have some mentors early on? I know Pillsbury, I, you know, I, as you know, I think I started at Procter & Gamble and, you know, kind of a similar consumer products background. And I recall a lot of folks that, you know, kind of helped guide me along the way. Where, where was that kind of an environment at Pillsbury in those early days? It was. And um, it's a great analogy to, to, to P&G because you recall how extraordinary the training was and how much yeah. they actually yeah. put into us back then. So you got the training, but then, of course, it was followed up by people who had been very successful um, in higher roles. And so the right. mentorship programs there, and then I went to ConAgra also in consumer products, which is really outstanding. Yeah, yeah, terrific. You know, we uh, kind of growing up in that environment, and, and I was about eight, nine years uh, at, at Procter, and I think the combined time at ConAgra and, and Pillsbury was about a, about a decade for you. Was that it is, right, yeah. Between those two? Correct. And, and, you know, there's, uh, there's mentors, but there's also tormentors. And one of the things that I, I always like to ask, and, and, you know, no names need to be mentioned, but, sure. you know, did, did you observe some behaviors during those days when you said, oh, man, boy, I'll tell you, that's a really tough way to manage. And I certainly ever want to do that. Any, any observations that you made during those early days about, you know, how not to develop and manage people? You know, honestly, I, I was super blessed. I mean, I've heard yeah. about these tormentors, and I've, I've never personally had a tormentor. I just, I've been really you lucky. are blessed. I know. I'm definitely in the minority. Now, look, as I get a little bit older, um, and look, Pillsbury wasn't an organization that tolerated that either, yeah. so I think yeah. that was part of it, um, right. nor was ConAgra. However, obviously, I've seen managers with whom I would not want to associate or, or work for, and I guess if you ask me what that common denominator was that made them bad, it, it was just ego, you know, and right. I think ego is, can be very pernicious. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And, and you kind of went on from there and kind of got back into staffing. I want to get to Beeline because I know you, you spent the majority mm -hmm. of your career there, but I think you had an interim step, right? Uh, I did. In, in a staffing group. Tell, tell us a little bit about that transition, how you kind of came out of that sales of consumer products into, into the staffing industry. Sure. Uh, well, I was down in Jacksonville where Winn-Dixie's headquartered and right. I was just yeah. ready to make a change. And I had um, a real desire to, to run a sales team. And uh, a friend of mine 
was um, coming down to Jacksonville to run scientific staffing. So a division of the MPS group at the time. Right. And so we just connected. I said, you know, I'm really looking for change. I'd love to manage a whole sales organization. And he said, that's interesting. I actually need that. So he hired uh, me on to, to do that for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and tell us a little bit about what you guys did. Were you an outsourced staffing recruiting organization or... Um, working in, in more in the technical field, give us a little bit of an overview. Yeah, it was it, it was more um, the Quest Diagnostics of the world or the J and Js okay. that were looking for scientific contractors. Um, right, right. But look, truth be told, we were quite unsuccessful. You know, when I came on, it was the recession hit, and then nine eleven hit shortly thereafter. And unfortunately, right. my experience was um, putting together all these great plans that never really effectuated. I was shutting down offices and. Oh. Uh, yeah, not not really my best best of times, and then yeah. uh, MPS Group ended up selling it to K Force. Okay, got it. And then did you continue on with that, or was that the time that you made your no, exit? No, that's when yeah. uh, they asked if I wanted to move on with the organization um, or stay with the MPS Group, and if stay, what would you be interested in? Um, and we had a really uh, neat CEO, brain. Uh, he was the the father of Beeline. Beeline was his brainchild. Ah, okay. And so I went up and um, had some discussions with him. And he said, you know, where, where do you see yourself? And I said, honestly, I don't really know anything about technology, but I'm really enamored with this solution that you've got out at the beach. Um, it was a different location. Right. Um, you know, and I'd love to do something there. And he said, well, you know, it's, it's nascent. And uh, it's only, I don't know, 25 people there right now. We need somebody in product management. Why don't you go run product management? And I confessed I didn't know anything about that. And um, he said, look, it's not that hard. <laughs> Good idea, but. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fun. Uh, and he said, yeah. oh, you figured out. Get out there. You'll, you'll figure it out. And, um, and that's where I started with Beeline. That's, awesome. that's how I started. And that was about 20 years ago, right? It was, yeah, about ago. 21. And how big were they at the time? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, we had no revenue. We certainly weren't profitable. And like, I think it was, was really, truly a startup. It, it was, yeah. Wow. Wow. And in fact, it, the, the original idea was to be a marketplace, which is kind of interesting because I think that was very thoughtful and prescient. But um, of course, now we're seeing marketplaces um, evolve. But but 21 years ago, it just wasn't so much of a thing. Right, right. Cool. Well, and tell us again then how, well, really, maybe we just start with where Beeline is today. It sounds like it's evolved significantly over the last two decades. You know, what do you guys do? Who do you serve? Give us kind of a, you know, a thumbnail sketch of the organization, your size and scope. Sure. Um, You know, in essence, we sit between the Fortune 2000 and, um, for the most part, staffing firms, although that's starting to evolve and change. And we're just technology. We don't provide staffing or services from that regard, but we automate the processes that are associated with that. And obviously we introduce rate cards and visibility in terms of what you're paying and where the talent is and how to get the talent. Um, There's a lot of compliance, as you well know, that's necessary in our industry that we we help with. Um, And and we're a global organization. I think uh, earlier you mentioned the offices we're in and um, owned by private equity, so I'm really not allowed to divulge certain things around numbers and sure. stuff, but, no you know, well over a hundred million dollar organization yeah. with roughly 500, uh, employees, employees. and about yeah. 350, uh, of the brands that you would recognize for sure. Yeah. And global, uh, yeah. as we mentioned the, yeah. the, in the, in the introduction, us, UK, Australia, the Philippines, are, are you looking for expansion as well to other global, uh, other locations? Well, it, I don't know that we necessarily need to put boots in the ground right now. I mean, yeah. uh, the Beeline solution is in over 80, 85 countries right wow. now. Um, wow. So it's a SaaS platform, right? Yeah. So we, we represent ourselves geographically. And right now I'm fairly happy with, with how we are. But 
you know, who knows what the future brings. Yeah, yeah, terrific. And so tell us a little bit about that evolution then for you from a career standpoint. You kind of went to this product management group. You kind of figured that out. And then did you kind of grow up, you know, through the ranks with the company, taking on different levels of responsibility? Give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of that career path. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure I figured out product management, but, but good enough at the time, right? <laughs> again, it was early days, and we were blessed in that we won J.P. Morgan Chase and Merrill Lynch almost uh, at the same time. Wow. Um, so I have to give them credit for figuring out product management. I mean, as you can imagine, these behemoths that are world-class, but, but very demanding for all the right, right. reasons. Right. So um, when the head of sales left the organization, my heart was really in sales, and I asked if I could mm. bump over there and run the sales organization, which I did, and had a ton of fun. Um, uh-huh. And you know, the sales cycle was very, very long because there's still a lot of education that had to happen back in that right. day. Right. Um, and then I progressed through, I, I always had a vision, kind of interesting around, I think it's interesting, around uh, what we call total talent management today. Uh, so I was pushing to go by an organization, which we did, which back then was succession planning, learning management, performance mm. management, all that. And we even bought an applicant tracking system organization. So. I had these um, grand ideas of, of kind of one-stop shop, but um, frankly, back then, and, and interesting, right up the corner from us was Verve, which Taleo bought. So that was a big applicant tracking system right, uh, organization. Right. And so by that time, you know, Taleo had kind of won the game in, for, in terms of ATS, and we and a few others had won the game in terms of VMS, as we call it, vendor management software. And unfortunately, some of those designs I had at one-stop shopping just weren't going to take off. I mean, you know, you had the success factors just destroying it out there and a bunch right. of other organizations focused on their niches doing great. Yeah. So we stuck to our knitting. We, we, we yeah. you know, kind of jettisoned some of those um, early acquisitions and just focused on the external workforce and, and, and really never looked back. And, and from that head of sales position, were you reporting into the C-suite at that stage, part of the executive team? I was. I was on the executive yeah. team reporting into our uh, president at the time. And then right. I became a general manager because that's when I was bringing in um, the performance management as right. well. And then um, he left in 2010. Adeco right. bought us in 2010 and put my hat in the ring and been there ever since. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you know, so much of the culture of a company does really emanate from the CEO, but, you know, broadly the C-suite and the folks that have influences there. Tell us a little bit about the Beeline culture and, you know, what it is that defines you folks. And, and how do you go about, you know, communicating that, particularly to folks that are joining the organization and, and keeping that fresh? Yeah, thanks. I think it's it's everything. It's the most paramount thing that you could focus in on. And it's funny when you said culture. Uh, I was talking with my head of marketing yesterday, and her mom calls it the cult. I hadn't <laughs> even really thought about cult and culture being in the same word until you That's said it That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, good and bad, right? I mean, you yeah, have to right, be careful right. that you don't drink too much of your own Kool-Aid. However, I'm a firm, firm believer. I'll, I'll take B-plus talent any day over A-plus talent if that B-plus talent knows how to get along with people yeah. and empower them versus yeah. cowboys. Um, right. And so right. we have nine principles at Beeline that we hire to, and uh, we talk about them a lot, and the organization knows them well. And so, um, you know, from a culture perspective, it's not just lip service to say we're people first. I believe that in the industry, I believe that manifests in our product, but most importantly, it manifests at home with Beeline. Yeah. And it, it really is a family environment, which candidly isn't the easiest thing to do, you know, when you go from like 30 to, to 500. Right. I used to know everybody's names and their, 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 their kids, and that, that no longer is the case. And yeah, COVID yeah. certainly has uh, challenged that even more. But right. I will tell you, it's our secret sauce. And I know that sounds a little bit uh, cheeky, but it's interesting when we have people visit us, prospects or clients, 
they get the feel and he's like, man, it's just, it's just a company that really cares about each other and their clients. And we've always tried to figure out if, if there's a way to bottle that and market it, yeah. I think, you know, we do really well, um, helping people understand who we are, but it, it's a hard thing to do. It, yeah. it manifests in customer conferences. Um, I, I think in just day to day, excuse me, um, interactions. Right. But I think unless you're in it, it's hard to really understand just how special it is at, at yeah. behind. Well, in the last year and a half too, particularly during the pandemic, it, you know, you probably continue to hire new people, et cetera. And, and, you know, with a much more remote workforce, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's really hard. I know a lot of the CEOs do struggle with how to go about communicating, you know, the importance of those principles. So you'd mentioned the nine principles and I want to ask you to recite them, but how were those developed? Was it something that you did broadly within the organization with the, uh, you know, your executive team? How did those come about? No, um, maybe it should have been, but frankly, what happened was I got the role and I spent a lot of time thinking about the changes I wanted to effectuate yeah. within the organization and some of the areas that we should highlight and some of the areas that maybe we should do less of. And so I just sat down with pencil and pen and, and uh, or paper and said, all right, you know, what are the principles that I feel would be important for the organization? Mm-hmm. And I came up with nine. Um, and some of my obviously drew from the mentors that you raised uh, earlier in the conversation. Right lessons learned. And, and it's funny uh, because I've had folks say, you know, we can't remember nine. It's too many. Like, you, you, I'm not asking you to. Right? Yeah, right. It, it, it's a parlance. It's a language. It's a way yeah. we think. Um, yeah. And frankly, it's a, it, it's a shield sometimes when, for example, one of them is um, customer centric, but, but that everybody has that. And I always challenge people like, if, if you'll just abide me for a moment, my definition of a customer is anyone who's not me. And so we're obviously going to take care of the Microsofts of the world and the Amazons and the Facebooks and all the other great clients we have. That, 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 that's a given. But do we take care of each other yeah. the same way? And, yeah. and invariably, we don't. So if we look mm. at each other as customers and treat them that way, then we'll have a superior culture and a better organization. Very important. Um, yeah. It can be kind of a checklist, right? I mean, you know, go and exactly. keep, keep it something on your desk or, you know, something on your computer now, I guess, these days. No, nobody keeps paper around much anymore. <laughs> I do. Able but to re- <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. you and me both. But, <laughs> but sure, you know yeah. what I mean? It's, I do. It's being able to have kind of that reference and, and be able to check against that. Yeah, that's cool. What, right. what, what would you say is kind of the most unique feature about the company culture, if you had to kind of boil it down to one or two points? Well, I always say to folks, if you don't like the word love or it makes you uncomfortable, this probably isn't a place for you to be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not for everybody. I totally yeah. subscribe to that. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I don't impose that on anyone. But I feel most gratified each year we do engagement surveys and there's a lot of comments and I read all of them. And, and, and trust me, they're not all good. But, but, but those that are typically center on this organization has my back, um, yeah. both professionally and importantly, personally. And especially as I contemplate the last two years and the amount of loss we've suffered, even with our organization, but with the extended family, which is their families, it's been hard. And um, yeah. this is a company that's like, it, it doesn't matter. Go do what you got to do. We got your right. back and we're going to do right. what we need to do here for each awesome. other. Awesome. Yeah, terrific. thanks. I think that's so great. too. You know, um, growing up in Proctor, and I'm a few years older than you, um, you know, I recall the bosses that I had. And and, and Proctor, a lot of great things there, but very patriarchal organizations and command and control. And, you know, um, you you didn't question much about what your boss had to say. You just kind of went out there and did things. And, you know, and that's evolved. That's changed a lot. And, you know, I've heard it recently said that some CEOs, you know, can be somewhat uncomfortable with having their 
answers questioned, right, rather than their questions answered. And you know, do you find that in your organization, uh, you know, particularly with the younger workforce, uh, that there is a, you know, kind of this quality of, well, gosh, you know, challenging management on, you know, uh, the decisions that are being made or perhaps the directions that are being done. And, and you know, when that happens, how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you kind of incorporate that into your, into your thinking? It's a great question. Um, look, there's two two responses. Sometimes I get a little defensive. I'm like, just yeah. fucking do it because I told you to. <laughs> right, right. It's hard not to have that yeah. response. Thank you for being so honest. Dad. Totally. Same generation, right? Like, I wasn't asking all my bosses. That, like, I just go do it, man. That's right. That's right. Because um, I but, said so, right? Exactly. <laughs> but I think to your point, like, we, you know, we have to be perpetual learners. And, and clearly right. the, the the generation of our kids is... They're not, they don't ask those questions with arrogance. They ask with genuine curiosity, That's which right. is beautiful, yeah. right? And so yeah. we've got to get out of our own egos. And yeah. I'm not going to tell you I do this all the time, but typically we try to be very transparent and help people understand the why. And, and often I say, guys, I have the right to make what you consider to be really dumb decisions. But to be fair, <laughs> I have a different perspective and a viewpoint and, and, and a bird's eye view of what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. I get that in your department this is frustrating or it may be dumb, but if I can help you look a little bit more broadly and connect the dots and that's all they're really looking for. Yeah, and I don't have right. time to do that all the, all the time. Right. But again, transparency is big in the organization. So if it's not me, it should be other leaders. Um, and, and, and we do our level best for that. I won't tell you, you know, we're hitting home runs all the time, but, but we're striving to be transparent and help, help them understand the why. And it's just good training and development for them as well. Yeah, and I think if you if you have that feedback loop too, right, mm-hmm. where there's the opportunity to come back and well, let's talk about what you found, or or let's have a discussion around, you know, your way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So often I've found that 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 again that younger generation, we won't call millennials because we don't want to be too, <laughs> too specific here, but but you know, you, but we you, all know what we're calling. We, <laughs> we, we all know, know what we're, we're talking, talking about. about. And right. and you know, if we're in a situation where we we have that opportunity to to do those loopbacks you know, it, it again kind of reinforces that, yeah, hey, they listened, you know, and, and I may not have gotten my way or I may not have seen things the same way or I may not still see it, uh, but, but you know, having that, that ability to, to, to be inclusive there. To tell us a little bit about kind of your, you, the evolving of your leadership. Now, you know, we can go as far back as your early days at Beeline, but I would say that, you know, you, you had obviously some very formative things that happened at Pillsbury and in Conagra, and I know those organizations, well, I recruit very often from them because we do oh, a lot of work in the consumer products field. But if, if you had to kind of say, you know, looking at your your leadership arc over the course of your career, what, what have been the key changes you've made, you know, that you, mm-hmm. you, you know, have learned in terms of how to really l- work and lead with people today versus, you know, maybe what you're doing 20, 30 years ago? That's interesting. You know, um, the first one that comes to mind actually was when I was at Conagra. And, and you remember they would send us through these um, two, three day psychological reviews to see <laughs> right. how far you could go and are you a hypo. Sure. And I remember vividly, I had this great counselor and she basically came back and said, uh, you got the chops to make it, but mm. you're not going to be happy in this environment. I was like, what are you talking really? about? Yeah. I know. And she said, I'm just telling you, you, you lead from the heart, and I want you to read yeah. this book, which I think is called Leading from the Heart, something like that. At any rate, yeah, she said, yeah. and, and, and culturally, you're going to run into dissonance, and you're going to have to sacrifice part of yourself. And if you're Isn't comfortable that with that, you should keep going. And if you're not, you should make a change. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, because I really wow. loved, I loved the people I worked with there. Yeah, and she was right. Yeah. I knew it, right? Intuitively, I knew it. Um, 
and there were certain things, and they weren't egregious, but there were certain things that were done over there that didn't really pay attention. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I remember um, we all had to skip Halloween and do some work, and I, I, just, I had like a two-year-old kid, you know, my son, and that just seemed wrong to me. And so I thought we were in a safe environment, and they asked for feedback, and I said, yeah, I thought that was kind of uncool, and, and, and they left me out, out of the room. Like, you. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I was like, all right, it's cool. Like that, that's your environment, but that's not yeah. really where I'm going to thrive. So I made right. a major change. And then, um, I guess moving closer to, to now, I like the way you state that the arc is I think about it, um, much more data driven than mm. instinct mm. driven. Mm. Um, I, I've but you still lead with your heart cause you talked about love and the importance of that in the culture. So I you haven't do. lost that. Huh. No, and I think, but I think it's important. It, it can't blind you, right? So, right, right. Um, look, when we merged with another company years ago, you have to go through what they like to call a synergy uh, exercise, which of course right. is firing people, and, and it was a, it, was a <laughs> it just is, right? And it's terrible. I, I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, it's, hard. it's really hard. Yeah. And it's necessary, yeah. right? And and so I, I think you do that with compassion and understanding, and and know that people will be mad at you, and, and you're going to be the target, and, and that's okay. That's the job you're in, but but you still have to do it. And one of the things I talk to my executive team frequently about is, I love your perspective, but are we suffering from the law of small numbers? Mm. In other words, when you say clients all want, you lost me because you haven't interviewed all the clients right. because that's impossible, right? Yeah. So you have yeah. an opinion. It's probably well-informed, but I would love for you to back that up with seven or eight or nine more data points before right. you come in with just total conviction. Big generalization. Yeah. Exactly. And we're all prone to it. I do it too, right? Yeah. But yeah. I've really had to check myself and realize, um, look, I'm wrong a lot. Um, hmm. and, and if I'm wrong a lot, I'm guessing those around me are wrong a lot as well. Right. And so let's right. just keep driving to the truth, even if that can be somewhat uncomfortable and um you know, a bit inflammatory when we mix it up with each other. And I think you want that in your team, right? Like, sure. I mean, as long as you go have beer afterwards and love each other, it's all good. But, <laughs> right, but right. yeah, and get a little, a little prickly. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. I told you I was going to bring this back up. So I am going to do it now. We were talking just before the podcast on how this book that you shared with me, um, and those of you that are, th you know, thriller, uh, and, and, um, who done it, uh, book, you know, snobs and <laughs> enjoyers as, as both Doug and I are by way of deception by Claire, Claire Hoy and Victor Ostrovsky, which I think is a, a real life version of a, of a, uh, well, it is a real life version of a Mossad, a Mossad agent. And we, we were talking a little bit about how, um, or at least my reaction as I was reading this book on how much his real life experience formed the basis of so many of the books that I've enjoyed that have been written in fiction. So, so my question for you is, you know, are there books out there in, in things that you rely on from a leadership and management standpoint that have really helped form kind of your, you know, approach in terms of how you lead and develop people? Yeah, I don't actually remember you saying that exactly, so I'm feeling a bit caught off guard, but that's okay. I remember you said you are going to bring it back, but I didn't know you were going to throw that zinger at me. I, I love to read, and part of the problem is um, I'm, I'm really bad at remembering all the titles, so I've actually resorted to, now I've got all these journals, and I, I, I write notes down um, just frequently and abundantly because in my age I know I'll forget them. So, right. you know, when I think about <clears throat> one of the early books that really formed me, it was uh, First Break All the Rules. Mm. And that focuses on helping people um, do what they're really good at and don't expect them to do what they're not good at. You have to compensate right. for that, right? right? right. There's also yeah. um, the behavioral economics I find incredibly fascinating of thinking fast, thinking slow, and um, uh, you know Kahneman and Tversky's work in terms of how we make decisions 
um, which is probably where I even got the law of small numbers because they have just, gosh, scores and scores of heuristics about how we think, which I find incredibly fascinating. those are the ones that are coming to mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm reading an amazing book uh, right now just called FDR, you know, and it's a big one because I don't feel well educated on uh, the presence of the past and right. and these enormous challenges, or I just read the, the, the Churchill one. You know, like, imagine, you know, yeah. we, we get all freaked out about a pissed off customer or, <laughs> yeah, or a supply chain. Yeah, you know, exactly, problem, right? right? <laughs> and, and like in their world, people are dying and sailors yeah, are being disabled. Yeah. So people I'm are invading their countries. Yes. Yeah. And how do you, with equanimity, look at that situation and still, with compassion for your countrymen, but still with the, as I just said earlier, kind of a mindset of data, look at what's in front of you and what decisions are are necessary, you know? And I don't know if you even know this, but I I didn't know it, I should have, but like Churchill bombed the, uh, the French Navy because they, he was afraid that, not the whole Navy, but this certain um, sector, he was afraid the Germans were going to take over and, and, wow. and the French said, we're not going to move our boats. And he's like, <laughs> and he wept as, as, yeah. as he bombed them. Yeah. Um, you know, not great for relationships, but had the bigger picture. Um, yeah, of protecting the Yeah, so just, yeah. I'm fascinated by people who are, um, have these types of decisions in front of them and how they deal with them. Right, and what a, what a great way to kind of open up your mind as well to different approaches on how to solve Agreed. problems. Yeah, totally awesome. right. Awesome. Yeah. Now you've you've seen a lot of growth, obviously, during your time at Beeline, and you know the terms of you know starting in the very beginning and now with close to 500 employees. You know, what do you look for when you're you know looking to make bets on people that you are investing in and hiring into the organization? Well, I guess it ties back to the principles, right? I, I'm mm. hoping that everybody's interviewing on those principles, but yeah. if you, you share that me, with folks, do they do they kind of know the nine principles as they go through the interview process? Um, Interesting question. Maybe I should. The answer is no. I I did with one lady who was, I I asked her what she's not very good at and she really struggled. And I said, look, there's no wrong answer here. I don't want to miscast you, right? Um, I like you. I want to put you somewhere, but I I, I need to understand. And really what I'm looking for is introspection. And for me, that's the most important quality because if I know that you can look inside and be adaptable and open to change and know that you're wrong and work with other people, then we can teach you the product. We can teach you the culture, et cetera. Um, so that's primarily what I'm looking for Mm. in an interview. Do you have some favorite interview questions that you like to ask? As I think back on this last one, it's, um, what do you suck at? Yeah. Right. Right. And it's interesting. I I, I almost don't get them to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, Just be open with me. If, and if you can't, it's okay. I've got my answer. It's not going to work here. You'll be successful somewhere else perhaps, but not here. And then, um, look, I know what I suck at. I I'm, I'm acutely aware of it. Uh, and that's why I surround myself with people who are amazingly more talented than I am in those areas. Yeah. And, and so that's all I'm looking for is honesty, openness, authenticity, as you said, um, and, and self-realization. And that I can work with very easily. Right. Terrific. Well, Doug, you've been very, very generous with your time. And we're just coming up to our last few minutes here. But we always ask one last question okay. of all our, all our CEO guests. And you know, that's kind of what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone maybe that's you know, mid-career possibly in their maybe late 20s, mid 30s, and thinking about the future. Maybe they've got their eye on the corner office, but, you know, really just want to have a, a great, you know, balanced work life and, mm-hmm. um, you know, looking to the future. What, what, what would you, you know, have to say to them about what they should be thinking about in terms of their career and, and direction? I love that question. I actually um, was just on the phone the other day with a young lady in college who's my um, my daughter's good friend and mm. she was asking something similar yeah. and you know oftentimes i do get the how'd you get to the corner office question and, and it's like 
look, it wasn't by design. And so what I would say is, um, <laughs> and, and I'm sure there's far more successful people that knew exactly what they wanted to do when they got there. My advice is don't shoot for the corner office. That that shouldn't necessarily be the goal. Mm. I think what you want to do, what I wanted to do at least, is aim to contribute to the best of my ability and, and, and just kick some tail and have some fun. And yeah. so I, I just like, go find interesting work. Um, I never grew up thinking I would be operating technology in the extended workforce, but, but it's really interesting and we're solving big problems and we're providing a lot of value and that's rewarding. So we also talked earlier about culture, you know, right. ensure, make that change like I did earlier, if, if you know you're going to have that dissonance. Right. Right. And then I think the other thing I try to share with people is, um, I think humility is very important. So, so seek to help others be successful within your organization first and trust me, your success will follow. It'll, it'll ride that wave. Yeah. But you and I have both been in situations where there's other folks that are just pushing their departmental agenda and it's, it can be counterproductive. So right. like help them achieve their agenda and, and they'll always help you as well. And I think, you know, if, if, if you just then put all that together, keep learning and work mm-hmm. your ass off, you'll end up in the right spot, whether that's a corner office or, or, or somewhere else. Right. Awesome. Wise words of counsel. Doug Levy, thank you so much. Beeline of CEO. We appreciate you sharing your journey into the corner office. Pleasure. Thanks so much. It was fun.